This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Alan Jones. Australia's leading voice. Good evening. Thank you for being with us again. I think you'll enjoy what I'm serving up to you tonight. More on the energy mess, and it is getting very serious. I'll talk to Jason Miller the man who was Donald Trump's spokesperson in the 2016 and 2020 elections. Gina Reinhardt, what's she up to? And Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. If Australians say no to the voice, they'll be saying yes to racial equality. I'm not opposed to a national anti-corruption commission, but this legislation has a long way to go before being acceptable. And what are we to make of the two Russian-owned gas pipelines leaking? I'll talk or deal with that as well. But look, this Optus farce must result in heads rolling and immediately a hacker releasing 10,000 records of stolen data, 37,000 Medicare numbers, driver's licenses. There's only one language that speaks in these circumstances. Optus is going to have to face severe financial penalties. And it's alleged that it will cost more than $1 billion to replace all the identity documents for affected customers. It doesn't get much worse than this, but there are many large outfits, aren't there, with a stack of information about us, and we worry about that. Are we sufficiently protected from identity theft? And can we be spared the alarmist rubbish about Hurricane Ian rolling over Cuba on its way to the coast of Florida? Adam Crichton, writing splendidly again from America, gets it right when he says, quote, as the residents of Florida brace themselves for one of the biggest hurricanes in the state's history, the rest of us should brace for a blizzard of fear-mongering and climate change propaganda, unquote. Well, Hurricane Ian is worse, isn't it, because of human-induced climate change. But as Adam rightly says, quote, far from increasing in severity, hurricanes have become less frequent over time in America, according to the scientific record. As Steve Coonan, the principal scientific advisor to Barack Obama, points out in his 2021 book, Unsettled, and I quote him, hurricanes and tornadoes show no changes attributable to human influence. That DNA story I've been telling you about in Queensland gets worse. Evidence yesterday of a rape case. Investigators collected six forensic samples from the victim and three from the suspect. Despite the presence of sperm, they were not fully tested, nine samples in all. The six samples taken from the victim, originally reported as DNA insufficient, later tested and reported matching the offender. The three samples taken from the offender, all reported in November last year as DNA insufficient, all retested between May and June this year. They came back matching the DNA of the victim. What the hell is going on and why? And what about Joe Biden? No matter Putin and Xi have declared open season, here is the leader of the free world speaking at a White House conference on hunger, nutrition and health. And he references the Republican Congresswoman, Jackie Walorski, who was part of the bipartisan group behind the White House health conference. Biden asks, and you'll see this in a minute, Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I think she was going to be here. Jackie Walorski died in a car accident in August and Biden issued a statement of grief at the time, obviously written by someone else saying he was shocked and saddened. So are we all, especially at this disgraceful performance by this impotent leader of the free world, 
Listen to this. Representative Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was going to be here to help make this a reality. Can you believe that? We do better than that here, I can tell you. And it's all coming up. You're watching ADH and I'm Alan Jones. In your interests, I can't speak about this enough. The bulk of Australians live on Struggle Street, the phrase I coined years ago. Well, Struggle Street is waking up. Politicians, hamstrung by blind ideology, continue on, but they still get their pay. The Prime Minister on 564,000, Bowen on 400,000, the backbenchers who nod in agreement to a ludicrous energy policy, 217,000, the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, who should be in the ring saying this is rubbish, 401,000. The Australian Energy Regulator and the Energy Security Board are warning that electricity costs will keep rising for years because the cheaper coal-fired generators are being forced out of the market and the Albanese government, Bowen, is talking about $20 billion in transmission lines to get his renewable energy into the grid. These costs will be factored into your household bill. The increases that they are predicting are eye-watering. Between 8.5 and 18.3% in New South Wales, 11.3 and 12.6% in Queensland, small business in New South Wales faces price rises, electricity price rises that could reach almost 20%, Queensland up to 13%. And these increases will flow into quarterly bills from October. But according to the regulators, worse will come what are called network costs, towers, poles, wires, and other infrastructure needed to transport electricity to customers, you pay for it. 40 to 50% of your electricity bill. Now, I told you yesterday that at a forum in Washington recently, Bowen, the dumbbell energy minister, and the architect of all this, said to reach the 43% legislated target, he would need to install 40, seven megawatt wind turbines every month through to 2030. And in that time, there'll need to be more than 22,500 watt solar panels installed each day, which is 60 million by the end of the decade. As I've asked, where do these things go? Do we compulsorily acquire agricultural land and shove them everywhere? And then you pay for the cost of the infrastructure that gets this stuff to the grid if it ever gets there. And remember Bowen saying in Washington, we face a collective endeavour of almost unprecedented scale, unquote. Well, as I said, that won't be my endeavour. My endeavour is to persuade Australians in Struggle Street that this is moronic. You and I know our energy should be the cheapest in the world, but we suck up to the United Nations and all these ideological zealots and let the rest of the world tell us that we must surrender our greatest international advantage, massive resources and cheap energy. Bowen has never opened his mouth on agriculture and transport, which are responsible for the same level of emissions as electricity generation. But Albo and co haven't stopped flying around the world in government planes. Yet here we are being told that our energy prices for business and households are unlikely to fall over the next several years. Not only do they want to take cheap coal-fired power out of the market, they want to build all these solar panels, wind turbines, transmission lines and infrastructure to bring this renewable energy into the grid and that will all flow into your bill. And who apart from me and a few others are saying anything about it? Well, I'll tell you something. Struggle Street is saying plenty. Collins says, quote, the tide will eventually turn on this madness. This young, woke generation won't give a damn about the climate change hysteria when they can no longer afford to live their current lifestyle because the cost of living has gone so high for too many. Bowen is the worst person to have in this portfolio, and you only have to look at his past record. Everything he's been involved in has turned into a mess." Unquote. Well, writes Colin, the tide will turn. Jeffrey writes, these increases will not only directly cause the poorest and most vulnerable Australians to suffer disproportionately, but they may, may well result in entrenched stagflation. Stagflation is when slow economic growth and joblessness coincide with rising inflation. Well, Jeffrey says, the federal election result was basically a national suicide note. 
Bernard wrote, they're wrong. The Prime Minister pledged to cut power bills by $275 by 2025. If you can't trust our Prime Minister, then who can you trust? John says, are these people blind? The only reason that electricity bills are soaring is the abject stupidity about carbon dioxide emissions. This country is being sold down the drain with lie after lie. Well, Spando says, we are constantly told that renewables are cheaper. However, the more renewables in the system, the higher the power prices. Clearly, renewables are more expensive. It would appear to be by a factor of at least four. We have been lied to. And John says, of course we've been lied to. There are lies in every IPCC report. There are also lies perpetuated or created in governments and by gullible CEOs. Steve says, our local hotel in Melbourne has had its electricity charge go from 26 cents a kilowatt hour in June to 54 cents a kilowatt hour in July. Previously, $500 a day for electricity, now $1,000 a day, and no end in sight of further rises. This will all end in tears. And Ray, all this pain to achieve a 0.7% reduction in global emissions. The UN, China, Russia, the US and India, the main polluters are laughing all the way to the bank. How can we Australians be so dumb? Well, the answer to that question is we don't do our homework. It's time we did some and made our voices heard. You check your electricity bill and stand up for common sense. Don't be embarrassed by supporting high efficiency, low emission coal-fired power stations. They're building them all over the world using our coal. Why not here? There's an interesting guest in town, Mr. Jason Miller, the senior spokesperson for Donald Trump in his 2016 election campaign, and Mr. Trump's senior advisor in his 2020 campaign, who fervently believes, and I believe it is proven, that many voters are tired of the political left, the woke, and the so-called progressives, who are really regressive, the so-called moderates, who are anything but moderate, and more like haters. Voters are looking for centre-right figures with centre-right policies who'll get into the ring and prosecute the case against an avalanche of left-wing woke nonsense. Now, my viewers have heard me talk about the, uh, the propaganda in our classrooms. Young children and university students built it around the head by climate change dogma. And if it's not that, it's Black Lives Matter. If it's not that, it's introducing race into our constitution or welcome to country. Well, Jason Miller last year founded a social network, Getter, G-E-T-T-R, saying, and I quote, the past couple of years have seen the worst political discrimination ever with regard to free speech. And he says, and I had a front row seat watching it happen in the US, working for President Trump in 2020. Jason Miller said, conservative voices were being drowned out by tech giants, quote, I see this as a world problem, not just an issue in the United States, because in Australia and the UK and all around the Western world, the balance between being a responsible democratic state and sliding towards authoritarianism is pretty thin. Well, the good news is, with people like Jason Miller and Getter, and here at ADH, the fight back has begun. Those outlets and tech giants and media conglomerates who boast that you'll get quote unquote honest opinions, never admit that the only opinions that are allowed are those of which they approve. The free world has no hope in that environment, which is merely an imitation of Moscow and Beijing. Mr. Jason Miller joins me. Jason, great to talk to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for taking a stand. You said the worst political discrimination ever with regard to free speech. Just amplify that for us. Yes, and Alan, it's an honor to be with you, uh, honor to be with you this evening. It's not just about politics even with 2020 and 2021, where the free speech assault really occurred or initially occurred was surrounding COVID and the origins of COVID coming from Wuhan in China. And as people started to speak up and report on what really happened, how this virus was unleashed and then cover up, covered up around the world, 
the big tech giants started to shut them down. Now, as we entered into the 2020 election season in the United States, we had the Hunter Biden laptop scandal, uh, which we can go into a little bit more, and then President Trump ultimately being deplatformed. But this was not a unique American problem, and it wasn't just politics. What we're seeing is that anybody who is willing to stand up and dissent to offer a counter opinion to what the media elites are telling us find themselves banned. Mm, absolutely. That's how this that's how this digital station came into being. I got sick and tired of being told what I could and couldn't say. You're talking about conservative voices. It's increasingly hard to find them, even amongst parties who call themselves conservative. I mean, you've established this social network getter. You've got about 6.5 million followers around the world, 125,000 Australia, and you've sponsored the visit to Australia of the former Brexit party leader, Nigel Farage, whom we heard the other night. But as proof of the problem, when you launched in July last year, bang, the left went after you. That's the business, isn't it? They don't want to debate you, they want to silence you. Well, absolutely, because what they want to do is not only they want to kick off, say, political leaders such as President Trump, my former boss, but anyone who would dare speak out against them. And, Alan, we had a great conversation the other day, and actually I should say that it was really you and Nigel Farage who were leading the conversation, but we were talking about the defense of Western civilization. But identity politics and this wokeism that is coming from the media elites, academia, and sadly, people who used to be called titans of industry, but are now effectively just supplicants to this wokeism themselves. If you push back against them and resist identity politics, you find yourself without a platform. Here's the interesting thing that I found as we launched this platform. Yes, it's there's a center-right passion, people pushing it back against wokeism. But as we saw the lockdowns in Melbourne, as Mm. we saw the COVID restrictions all around the world, it has awakened a new generation of people, whether it be an Andrew Bogut, the basketball player, of course, uh, from the Milwaukee Bucks and the Sydney Kings, Matt Letizier, the greatest British footballer in history. Folks like that who are now waking up and saying, I'm not in politics, but I don't like my rights being taken away. Correct. Correct. People are too frightened to speak up. I mean, there are tens of thousands of people listening to us right now who would privately say, it's too dangerous to put your hand up and have a contrary to view, contrary view to the one, the one idea view, which we're all meant to get behind. I mean, this is true. You, you couldn't speak about coronavirus, lockdowns, net zero, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. I mean, the former president, Donald Trump, was banned from Twitter, Twitter in 2020. What does that say about free speech? Great question, because what it shows is if the big tech elites are willing to kick off a sitting president of the United States. That means that literally the guardrails are gone. They're unencumbered to do anything they want, to kick off anyone they want. In fact, on that night of January 6th, when President Trump was trying to put out the statement telling people we're going to have an orderly transition into the next administration, the media elites, the social media tech giants wouldn't even let him post that to social media. They want to not only snuff out and silence, but completely remove anyone who has a dissenting opinion. It's almost, Alan, as if they read 1984 and got the complete backwards message, as if they they were motivated by the goal of suppressing half of society. Absolutely. What sort of man is Donald Trump? Yeah, it's, he's exactly the type of person that you see um, on TV. He's going to give you his opinion at any time. I think there are a lot of misnomers, though, about what type of person he is, what type of boss he is. He's always thinking in a counterintuitive uh, approach. And one of the biggest applause lines he got in 2016 was when he said he was running against the failed foreign policy of mm-hmm. both parties, the Republicans and Democrats. People don't view Donald Trump as a politician. That, quite frankly, is how he won in the upper Midwest in the United States. The more industrial labor bases of Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, because he wasn't identified as saying being a, a politician, a party leader of that sort. And I think people are looking for something different. Here's the thing, Alan. When you look at it, used to be considered really kind of the flat line as far as ideological spectrum. You have the left, you have the right. Now it's much more of a circle. And you see where the difference between, say, a Donald Trump populism isn't that far off from, say, a Bernie Sanders populism, with the exception of a couple of very key freedoms, 
what here's my big concern the whole aspect of exceptionalism we have a, a mantra in the u.s of american exceptionalism this has somehow now become a pejorative whether it's australian exceptionalism whether it's brazilian exceptionalism we are moved and motivated by this God-given right that we can succeed, that we have a voice. But the left wants to silence That's anyone it. who wants mm. to achieve anything. Mm. And, and Donald Trump talked about draining the swamp. When you talk about that, there are many people whose indulgent and government-sponsored lifestyles are threatened. So they mobilize. Absolutely. And the swamp fights back. Yeah. And that's something that, quite frankly, even though I've battled the swamp uh, for many years, I didn't realize how hard they would fight back. Yeah. It can be Republicans. It can be Democrats. Anyone who resists change, who embraces the status quo, comes shooting at the reform agents. And we see that in every we Absolutely. see that happening with President Bolsonaro, Absolutely. quite frankly, in Brazil. What should we make of these relentless attacks now against Donald Trump, presumably designed to disqualify him from running in 2024? Well, bingo, you got it exactly. This is all about electoral politics. This isn't about some saving American society or the rest of the world. This is about people who have their power, who think now that Joe Biden and Democrats are in control, they can cling to their power. They don't want Trump to come back and say, wait a minute, the people should be in power here. The other thing, too, that I'm really, uh, I, I really think President Trump needs to come back, and we see it here in Australia, the need to stand up to the CCP mm. and to China. And Australians are so much more aware of what's happening than even in the United States. But if we don't stand up against these authoritarian regimes, we're going to end up living in them. So will he stand? I believe so. I do think President Trump runs. I think the more they attack him, the more they come at him with legal assaults and things of that nature, the more likely he is to run. But here's the thing, Alan. I don't think it'll be against Joe Biden. I think even Democrats know no, that Joe Biden no. is really walking on eggshells. Mm. Uh, some of the, the, the gaffes that he makes on a daily mm. basis are scary. It's well, scary as I, as I say, Jason, Biden's greatest insurance policy is Kamala Harris. I mean, they're propping Biden up because Kamala Harris <laughs> be many times worse. I mean, the incoherence of Biden and the cognitive deficiency are disturbing for the Western world. I mean, you made that point about the Chinese Communist Party. Geta has taken a hardline stance against that. Not the people, but the Communist Party, the leadership. You've described as an existential threat to Western civilization. Jason, are we equal to that threat? I don't think so. And that's what scares me. I think that we need to stand up and be firm against that threat. Otherwise, the Chinese, uh, and again, the Chinese Communist Party, not the free people of China, but the thugs and the thugocracy that runs China. Uh, it's, it, communism is almost kind yeah. of a cover. It's really mm. as if they're mafia bosses. Mm. But if we cherish our freedoms, if we cherish the right to dissent, uh, as you so smartly put it, uh, our freedom is the ability to dissent. This mm. is what makes it democracy. Absolutely. Unless we embrace and that, it and we. Yeah, keep going. Uh, I was going to say, unless we embrace uh, the decentralization of free speech, what you're doing with ADH, what I'm doing with Getter, what all these other uh, individualized, decentralized platforms are doing are ensuring that our voices will never be, be snuffed out. Can be but heard. Absolutely. With the, voice, with the voice of the voiceless here. You see, you made this point that the big tech platforms like Twitter and Facebook started off as projects to really bring people together. But at a certain point... They want to disconnect people who are not like them. Yes, and there's something that not many people realize is that the political left and the Silicon Valley elites blamed Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg for President Trump winning in 2016. It was almost like an episode of Scooby-Doo where they yes. said, if it wasn't for you pesky kids, we would have gotten away with it. That's why you saw big tech change the rules and initiate shadow banning and deplatforming and things like that. Because in the past, revolutions have been fought and won on military strength. Now, revolutions are fought in one with this, Absolutely. a smartphone and, you, and your voice. This is what will protect freedom going forward. Just before you go, we could talk all night. How do you encourage people to have confidence rather than fear of articulating their responsible observations? 
Well, I think that there's a false uh, dichotomy that the media is trying to create, saying that free speech is uh, in somehow uh, or in some facet hate speech, but then safe speech is highly regulated speech. What we're doing with Getter is showing that we can make social media fun again, that you can have responsible speech, keep the illegal content off of it, but make sure that nobody is ever going to be discriminated against based on their political beliefs. We have to take that stand and fight back now. Otherwise, when you look at the younger folks, they're going to enter a world mm. where free speech was something that uh, the old timers used to do. But Absolutely. We don't do that anymore. Absolutely. Well, in terms of free speech, you can do it here on ADH and you can also do it on Getter. Just go to Getter, G-E-T-T-R dot com. Jason, great to talk to you. And we've got to keep in touch and we've got to talk again. Mr. Jason Miller, grateful for your time tonight, Jason. Thank you, sir. It's an honour. How instructive is that? There we are. Digest it. That's the thing we've got to do. Digest it. Gina Reinhardt must rank as one of the great and successful Australians. The fact that she gets no credit for that is the consequence of one issue and one issue only. She holds views which are, which are critical of all governments for very le legitimate reasons. It was way back in 2017 that she was urging the government, then led by Malcolm Turnbull, to cut spending and waste to make Australia attractive to investors, spending and waste. Look where we are now. She said then, quote, we have to cut out a big slab of expensive government. It is very frustrating that there's wastage going on and so little attention, real attention, is given to making ourselves attractive for investment, unquote. I mean, do you think investors are going to be attracted by the stupidity of our energy policy and costs? Back in 2017, Gina Reinhardt urged Malcolm Turnbull to cut taxes and red tape. She was whistling in the dark. She said, as a high cost country competing internationally, we really are struggling with the high cost of government. We have to cut regulations, cut our approvals, our permits, our licenses, and our compliance burdens. We'll have to do something about our taxes because you can't compete internationally if you're not competitive. Now that was five years ago. Here we are with a worker shortage. Gina Reinhart made the point that I have made often, let non-violent prisoners work. Why couldn't they be allowed to join the workforce in the cleanup after the floods and have their prison terms reduced following an evaluation of the work that they've done? As Gina Reinhart said at the time under Trump, quote, so many of the states in America are making sure that instead of building new prisons, plus the operating costs, the non-violence are getting sent out to work. They pay for their crime, whether it's petty theft or driving too quickly. Now, at the same time in 2017, another Australian billionaire, Anthony Pratt, announced that he would be investing another $2 billion in the United States, his words, quote, to create an additional 5,000 high-paying manufacturing jobs, unquote, because Trump had made, quote, America the greatest place in the world to manufacture. Unquote. At the time, I made the point five years ago that the Pratt decision and the Reinhardt comments were a brutal reminder that Australia then was making itself dangerously uncompetitive. But government ignored both Reinhardt and Pratt, and now we've got energy costs going through the roof. The number of pages of Commonwealth environmental law has exploded 80-fold since 1971, 80-fold. Many times, Gina Reinhardt has said, that when she tried to establish her now very successful Roy Hill mine, she had to navigate her way through, get ready for this, over 4,000 regulatory approvals, permits, licenses, the lot. And she was building the largest single iron ore mine in Australia, 277 kilometres south of Port Hedland. 50,000 people worked on the project. And she despairs about Australia and the politicians hate it. The truth is, this country has gone mad on a million fronts, and there are very few with the guts to do anything about it. I've always argued that instead of these Australia Day honours, we should publish a list of the top 100 taxpayers in the country, because they keep keeping the show going. Enter again Gina Reinhart, the largest private company taxpayer in Australia. Yet it's only a few years ago that the tax office said that 98 private companies earning over $200 million paid no tax. 
Companies are using tools such as profit shifting to overseas entities in low tax jurisdictions to make sure a large part of their Australian revenue is not taxable income. Who in government is prepared to do the tough stuff? It appears no one. Well, while talking about Gina Reinhart, may I make one unflattering comment about her? She won't mind me saying it. She knows very little about sport. Yet she has emerged as sport's finest benefactor. She's now thrown a multi-million dollar lifeline to Netball Australia, whose finances could only be described as dire, with debts of about four million due and payable at the end of this year. Gina Reinhart's come to their aid, in the words of her company, quote, allowing Netball Australia to maintain its position as the cornerstone of women's sport in Australia, unquote. But where is corporate Australia with all its profits lining up alongside Gina Reinhart to support young, achieving Australians, not just in sport, in the arts, in any field? Gina Reinhart is the biggest individual financial supporter of Australia's Olympic efforts. She's backed swimming, volleyball, synchronised swimming and rowing. And she makes sure that her investment goes directly to the athletes, the coaches, the training camps and the competitions. Bloated administration doesn't feature in Gina's handouts. Well, is there a more achieving Australian? Would government ever ask her how she does it, given that all governments seem to sponsor is failure? Well, it's that time of the week again. Let's welcome back the articulate and always informed Daniel Wilde, the Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs. Now, Daniel has sent every single member of federal parliament a research video made by the Institute of Public Affairs explaining why the voice to parliament will permanently divide Australians by race. The video features people we have spoken to on this program, some very recently. Senator Jacinta Nampajimpa-Price, Dr. Anthony Dillon, and Senator James McGrath. Daniel joins me. Daniel, thank you for your time. Uh, the video is four minutes long. How do non-parliamentary Australians access the video? Alan, great to be with you. You can go to YouTube and look up Institute of Public Affairs and the video is available there. And we've distributed across social media. Uh, but one point I will make on social media, Alan, is we put it on Facebook. Uh, and then what we wanted to do on Facebook is to promote uh, that video in order to share that research with the community. And Facebook banned us from doing that. They have prevented us from uh, promoting our research sure video is. to the Australian community. And this is an example of how big tech, uh, I would argue, along with the acceptance of the Labor government, are seeking to potentially rig uh, this upcoming referendum by refusing to allow those who do not support the voice from distributing their views into the community. So this is a very big issue, Alan, that's just happened today. Like I say, we tried to promote our video on Facebook, like every Australian should be able to do, no matter what your views are, you should not be censored by big tech or big corporations. And I think this is going to be a very, very big issue in terms of the ability of the Australian community to receive important information about how the voice to parliament will divide us by race and how it will uh, undermine our normal democratic processes. Absolutely. I mean, you've described this rightly as a critical issue, and so it is. A fundamental principle of the Australian way of life is that every Australian gets the same say over our nation's future. Well, that's right, Alan. It shouldn't matter what your race is, your ethnicity, your gender, your religious beliefs. The whole point of Australia as an egalitarian society, is everybody gets the same say over the big issues yeah, facing our nation's future. Everybody's voice matters. Everybody's they, voice matters. Every voice matters and everyone's voice matters the same. This is the whole point of having an egalitarian democracy. You know, we're the nation that invented the secret ballot, a cornerstone of democracy all around the world. One person, one vote, no one has greater preference than anybody else, whether you're rich or poor, no matter your background, you get the same say. Uh, and the same vote, uh, what the voice to parliament will do is it will give Australians, based on their racial background, different and separate political and legal rights. And that just simply goes against absolutely everything that this nation has stood for and fought for. It is a retrograde step that takes us back pre-1967. 1967 referendum was about removing references to race. 
to make us more equal in our constitution. Uh, the voice to parliament will insert references to race back in our constitution. So it's retrograde and deeply illiberal. Yes, I mean, yet you've got corporations and CEOs and media and editorial writers and everybody else saying, oh, this must be done without any analysis of the consequences of this. Well, that's right. It's a very deep concern. As you rightly identify, we have uh, the big corporates, uh, the major media organisations, uh, big banks and financial institutions, both sides uh, of politics that are promoting the voice to parliament, uh, firstly, without any understanding of the historical or cultural implications this will have on our nation. But as you say, they have no idea how this will operate in, in no. practice. What our research has shown is that in effect, um, the voice to parliament will be a third chamber of parliament because there is no way that a government will go against the advice of the voice to parliament. Anthony Albanese admitted that mm. in a recent interview he did with David Spears on the ABC, where David Spears asked him, what if the voice um, gave you an opinion that went against the government? And Albanese responded saying it would be a very, uh, a very brave government that would go against the advice of the voice, which is basically saying it's going to be a third chamber um, of government and it will undermine the normal process of policymaking um, in the parliament. Now, the other point to make here, Alan, is Advocates of the voice say it will only have a very narrow remit, but that is false because every single issue is an Indigenous issue because Indigenous Australians are Australians, whether it's tax, welfare, transport, education, health, all of these issues will be subject to an effective veto power mm. by the voice. Because they affect every Australian. I mean, to take another point here, and which we almost get belted over the head, but I don't think it's controversial to say that welcome to country is no different from welcome to my home. If I knocked on your door, you would say, oh, welcome, Alan, come in, which means you're telling me it's not really your place, but you can come in with my permission. So we're telling people that, well, you're welcome here to this country. It's not really your place but please feel free to come in. I mean, this is being swallowed by every school child. It's said everywhere. It's rammed down the throats of everyone. Welcome to country. It is, Alan. And it gets to this deeper issue, which is that school children are told to be ashamed of our nation and our history and our culture. They're told that our history is one of continued racism and oppression. Yeah. They're not told about how Australia is a great nation, that the values that we all have in common, freedom, democracy, fair, uh, fairness, tolerance, egalitarianism, these are the values that have made us the nation we are today. Those are the values that attracted millions of migrants to our shores. That's why we have so many that want to come to our nation, not because we're a racist nation, but because we're a welcoming, fair-minded, tolerant nation. Mm. Yet children around the country are not told that. And they are deeply ashamed Definitely. of themselves Definitely. because it's a form of self-hate. If you hate mm. your country, you'll hate yourself. And, of course, feel uh, guilty. And they're not told about the positive Feel guilty, made to feel guilty that we're actually taking something that doesn't belong to us. I mean, this, forget all the other rhetoric about this, this is an Indigenous-only voice inserted into the Constitution. So separate political and legal rights to one group of Australians based on race. I mean, how is that going to do anything other than divide us? It won't, Alan. It will divide us permanently by race. Even just asking the question That's will divide us because mm. if Australians vote no, then that will be used as a cudgel by the governing class to prove, quote unquote, that we are racist. Yep. And of course, if we vote yes, then we'll have this race-based body in our constitution forever. I mean, this cannot be abolished by parliament. It is there forever. Um, the other point that I would make is what practical difference is this going to make on the ground? You know, the fundamental building blocks of a decent, dignified life do not depend on the colour of your skin. We all know that you need to have kids in schools, adults in work, crime-free suburbs and communities, access to critical social infrastructure. Those are the building blocks of a decent life. We all know that. Everybody knows that. Governments need to get on with the job rather than uh, engaging this identity politics and putting it in our constitution. Yeah, and Indigenous Australians are writing to me to tell me there is no such thing as a voice. There are 
you know, mm. hundreds and hundreds of Indigenous voices, yet the government is asking a question of Australians at a referendum, which you, we just said will permanently divide us, but that division already exists. I just want to repeat that point that you've made. If there's a yes vote, there will be a race-based entity, which according to the Indigenous Voice report to the Australian government, which I have ploughed through, would require that, quote, government officials engage, that's on your screen, government officials engage in partnerships across government and portfolios, partnerships, and with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So they become a partnership with government. It's in the document. And, quote, the national voice, this is in the document, would provide the mechanism to ensure Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have a direct say on any national laws, policy and programs affecting them. Well, of course, that becomes, that's interest rates, that's social welfare, it's the education curriculum, it's a housing policy, which affects them and affects everybody else. But other Australians don't get a direct say, Daniel. That's right. It's a critical point that you make. It will affect every area of policy because Indigenous Australians are Australians just like you and I are. So the issue here is that every single policy will be subject to an effective veto power uh, by this voice. And I just want to touch on another important observation that you made, which is that there is no one single Indigenous voice, just as there is no one single uh, non-Indigenous voice, just as there is no one single migrant voice or Indian community voice or Chinese community uh, voice. We're all individuals. We all can receive expression of our views as individuals. And by the way, this is an important point which goes to the nature of our democracy based on, uh, based on the seats that we have. It doesn't matter what the colour of your skin is, what your race is, what your religion is. The idea is that you can have a member of parliament that represents common interests across the community, whether that's to do with jobs, whether it's to do with education or health or infrastructure, is the representation of common interests across our diverse community. The voice to parliament challenges that very idea. Yes, I just want to finish here with a very significant point that you have made in the letter that accompanied that video to parliamentarians. Daniel Wilde wrote this, to suggest as some have, that we cannot make up our minds about the voice until there are more details is to concede that there are details which would make constitutionally enshrined racial division acceptable or desirable. In other words, Daniel, the voice is wrong in principle. The voice is wrong in principle. It is ethically and morally wrong to divide our nation by race. This is why we don't need to wait for details because there are no details that make the voice okay. Absolutely, we must do everything we can as a community and our governments to address the significant disadvantage in, in Indigenous communities, but you don't do that by having a separate race-based body in our constitution. And this is why it's so important that the coalition opposes the voice as a matter of principle because mm. we're all equal and there are no details uh, that makes it okay to divide Absolutely. us. Absolutely. And just final point then, the other sentence which resonates in that letter, and you just alluded to it about being all equal, Daniel is saying simply this, in saying no to the voice, Australians are saying yes to racial equality. Daniel, look, brilliant stuff. We'll leave it there. I think we need to follow up on this, especially the issue that you made there about Facebook and the circulation yes. of this of this video. Uh, this needs wider debate and wider discussion. And on this program, we we provide that. We don't have the, the woke principle at work here. You are making very, very valid points, many of which I've already made, but when we're sick of saying it, the people out there will start to hear it. So thank you for your time tonight. We'll talk again next week. My pleasure. Thank you, Alan. There is Daniel Wilde, articulate, smart, and to the point. In saying no to the voice, Australians are saying yes to racial equality. I warned earlier this week about the Federal Government's Anti-Corruption Commission. I stated up front, there can be nothing wrong with a National Anti-Corruption Commission except the detail. Well, now we find that the National Anti-Corruption Body will have retrospective powers. That must mean that the Liberal Party would have to oppose the legislation. It is in the Liberal Party's DNA to oppose retrospectivity. We don't know who these people are who will be appointed to the Commission, 
that according to the legislation, and there's a mountain of it, hundreds and hundreds of pages, it will be able to start its own investigation without a referral. Now, if this body has retrospective powers, how will those powers be used? I mentioned earlier this week the observations of the former Australian Federal Police Commissioner, Mick Keelty, who rightly argued that such a commission could be politically weaponised to unfairly destroy the careers of high-profile people. So if this commission can start its own investigations without a referral, and apparently without the need for any evidence of a criminal offence, then surely the warning of Mick Kelty is valid. Will we know how investigations will be determined? What safeguards, as Mick Kelty has asked, would be implemented to ensure that members of the new body are not biased against certain individuals who can apparently be investigated without the need of any evidence of a criminal offence? I also mentioned earlier this week the New South Wales ICAC. There are authenticated reports that 128 people have been defamed or destroyed by the New South Wales ICAC. In one instance, the businessman Sharif Kazal appears on the ICAC website amongst the list of corrupt people. But the former reputable New South Wales judge and former ICAC inspector John Nicholson has delivered a report five years ago to the Berejiklian and now Perrottet government, 110 pages, which stated ICAC had no evidence of any wrongdoing in its possession, either before, during or after the Kazal case. But ICAC spent millions of dollars wrongfully pursuing Kazal, and the DPP had to repeatedly advise ICAC that there was no evidence of any wrongdoing. Margaret Kaneen, the high-profile former Deputy Senior Crown Prosecutor of New South Wales, had to go all the way to the High Court to clear her name of ICAC damage. The former Emergency Services Commissioner in New South Wales, an outstanding man, Murray Keir, was found corrupt by ICAC. Thankfully, he was able to get himself into a court of law and defeat that finding. The magistrate demolished the credibility of ICAC. But I repeat, now we have legislation for a national anti-corruption commission, which can start its own investigations without a referral. It can investigate retrospectively Minister Dreyfus says the hearings will generally be in private, but, quote, the Commission will have power to hold public hearings in exceptional circumstances and where it's in the public interest to do so, unquote. Who defines exceptional circumstances? Who defines in the public interest? The ICAC experience in New South Wales visited needless humiliation on many high-profile figures. Barry O'Farrell, an undeclared gift of a $3,000 bottle of wine. Premier Nick Greiner, after offering the Liberal turned independent MP Terry Metherill an executive position in the Environmental Protection Authority, ICAC's finding against Mr Greiner was overturned by the courts long after Mr Greiner had to resign as Premier. Mr O'Farrell was never charged with anything. It's instructive to note that three South Australian King's councils, two men and one woman, wrote on Monday that Without adequate safeguards, corruption commissions have the capacity to operate as a star chamber and to have consequences that were significant and irreparable. Their words, quote, in our experience, the process and stigma of being a person who has appeared before a corruption commission, should that appearance be made public, becomes a very severe punishment, unquote. They further wrote, some commissions outside South Australia hold public hearings that result in public humiliation and the destruction of reputations. The processes invoked by corruption commissions bear no relationship to fair processes a court must apply, unquote. Now, of course, the Greens and the Teals are up in arms of what they claim is the Dreyfus plan to restrict public hearings. But in fact, this National Anti-Corruption Commission will find it easier to hold public hearings than is the case with the New South Wales Independent Commission Against Corruption. ICAC can't hold a public hearing unless the Chief Commissioner and at least one or two other commissioners agree. There is no such restriction in the national scheme. And I repeat, the National Commission can start its own investigation without a referral and without any need for a criminal offence. And while the bill says that the public hearings may be held in exceptional circumstances, that's no restriction. 
and the term, as I said, exceptional circumstances, is undefined. And unlike New South Wales, where changes have been made such that an ICAC commissioner is now required by law to consider the risk of reputational damage to the person being subjected to a public hearing, there is no such compulsion for this national commission. It may have regard to reputational harm, but it's not compelled to. These corruption instruments wield immense power. Here is that power spelt out. The proposal for a national anti-corruption commission gives the power of the commission to start its own investigation without a referral. It can investigate retrospectively. It can investigate without the need for evidence of a criminal offence. There are no limitations on public hearings. This legislation needs significant and urgent amendment. Peter Dutton, here's your chance. Get to work. Before we go, I want to touch on this disturbing situation in Europe. To put it lightly, it's not looking good. Two days ago, as you know, the Russian-owned Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines began leaking. Since then, the pipelines have been pouring millions of cubic metres of natural gas into the Baltic Sea off Denmark. The leak has created a toxic bubble field in the Baltic Sea that's almost a kilometre wide and it doesn't look like the leaks were an accident. According to Swedish officials, two powerful underwater explosions were detected at the same time as the leaks began, one of which was so strong, it was equivalent to hundreds of pounds of TNT. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister of Poland said, we can clearly see that it is an act of sabotage, an act that probably marks the next stage in the situation we're dealing with in Ukraine, unquote. So, who's responsible? Well, we don't know. But many have their suspicions. Some are saying it was Putin, but why would Putin blow up his own natural gas pipelines? The very pipelines that are Russia's source of wealth and leverage over Europe as it approaches a cold winter. Others have blamed the United States. In February this year, President Biden said that, quote, if Russia invades, there will no longer be a Nord Stream 2. We'll bring an end to it, unquote. And Biden wasn't the only one to make such assertions. Back in January, Victoria Newland at the State Department, the same woman who was involved in the invasion of Iraq and helped orchestrate the ousting of the former Ukrainian president, Viktor Yanukovych, eight years ago, said, quote, with regard to Nord Stream 2, we continue to have very strong and clear conversations with our German allies. If Russia invades Ukraine, one way or the other, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward." Unquote. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not accusing the Biden administration of this egregious act of economic terrorism, but we have to consider the possibility. Just listen to Radislav Sikorski, a European Parliament member and former Polish foreign minister. After the pipeline blew up, Sikorski tweeted, thank you, USA. Perhaps even more suspect is the fact that a new European gas pipeline was unveiled a day after Nord Stream blew up, a pipeline that carries Norwegian gas to Poland under the same Baltic Sea. Interesting timing. Meanwhile, Biden's spokeswoman, Karine Jean-Pierre, said the destruction of Nord Stream is an opportunity to, quote, accelerate true energy independence by moving to a clean energy economy, whatever that means, just as the lights begin to switch off across Europe. You couldn't make this stuff up if you tried. We are though on many things, especially energy, living in very unpredictable times. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you next Tuesday night at eight o'clock. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.